Galatians 3, and we're going to start at verse 23, although our focus is going to be on 26 to 29. We're going to start in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Thus far, God's word. So Paul has worked diligently and carefully and patiently to show that the Old Testament laws, marking the people holding the promises of salvation, those laws were never, never intended to be how God saved his people. It It never made them God's people, in fact. But what those laws did do is they temporarily externally marked them as the people waiting for God's promised heir. These laws were preparing them and guarding them until that great salvation would come. And those who had trusted God's promises of salvation would be saved by faith in the great son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ who came some 2,000 years after Abraham received that promise. No one keeping the Old Testament law of God was ever saved by obedience to the law. Anyone trusting in the works they were doing in order to be embraced by God was actually cursed by God. Anyone asking God to consider their works would be asking God to damn them. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his own son, to join the family of Abraham, the Israelites, to be born of a virgin Israelite girl who was the bride-elect of a poor Israelite man from the tribe of Judah and who could trace his ancestry back to the great king of Israel, David. The child born to Mary and Joseph was the offspring, that singular, remember that singular offspring that God had sworn to Abraham who would certainly inherit all the blessings that God had promised to Abraham and who would then spread those blessings to all peoples, regardless of nationality, but simply on the basis of faith in those promises. That man, that Lord Jesus, that son of Mary and Joseph, son of David, son of Abraham, he would earn salvation for everyone who recognized they were guilty before God and at heart enemies of God, and then who desired and trusted Christ to reconcile them to God. Christ kept the law for them. He took on the cross the damnation for them, from from God, for their transgressions against the law. He triumphed over death for them when he rose from the dead, securing eternal life for all who trusted in him. You see, all those things that Christ earned for his people, for his Old Testament people and his New Testament people. He earned all these things, but it was more than that. 
The gift that Christ purchased for those who trust in him is more than eternal life. It's more than forgiveness of sins. It's more than entrance into God's eternal kingdom as forgiven enemies with no punishment to face. It's sweeter than being sons of Abraham, heirs of Abraham. It's better than that. The Lord Jesus told a parable before he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And this is the parable of the prodigal son. And to get at what Paul is really digging into here, I think it would be good to read the prodigal son. Let's read Luke 11. Luke 11, sorry, Luke 15, sorry, Luke 15, verse 11. And here we're finding what is it that Christ purchased for his people that is better than forgiveness, that is better than eternal life, that is better than not going to hell and being punished for your sins. What is it that Christ purchased as the great son of Abraham, the son of God that he purchased for his people with his life, death, and resurrection? Luke, Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, Jesus speaking, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, forgive me. Sorry, Father, no. <laughs> father, give me uh, the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine across arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the, and the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and killed it and let us eat and celebrate for my son. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus far God's word. I wonder if you noticed what the best kind of reception 
that that humbled and guilty son was hoping for? What was the best reception he was hoping for? To not be attacked when he came to the gate. To not be forbidden entry. And to earn his keep as a hired servant. To relate to the father of the household on the basis of his works for the family as a hired hand. Here's the law that the father gives to the servants. If they keep it, then they get pay and they get food and they get protection. That was his plan. His best case scenario. No getting my head cut off and being able to eat. In exchange for my work. The father had none of it. Did you notice that? He gets half of it out of his mouth before the father is already calling for the servants to celebrate and to put a robe on the guy and put a ring on his finger to establish his position as an heir and not a servant. So dear friends, the gift of the gospel is not merely to be forgiven and live eternally. That gift is sonship with God to be his heir, him, your father, and you his heir. That brings us to our first point. Those who have faith in Christ share in his sonship of God. Galatians 3, 26, you'd see this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through works. Nope. (laughs) Through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It is actually, it's easy to miss that sweet word right before Christ Jesus. There's a word that, that, that we, we can miss very quickly, that word right before Christ Jesus. One of the most sweet words in all of scripture, the word in, especially before the word Jesus. It seems to actually be one of Paul's favorite doctrines. And that is union with Christ. In Christ. Union with Christ. Christ the head. The believers, those who have faith, his body. We are united to him. We are one with him. God considers us one with Christ. He will treat us as though we are one with Christ. We are legally one with him. This what marriage was created to be a living parable of. Legally one. Two becoming one. Legally, but not just legally, but actually coming together, sharing life and sharing of self. And Paul's point all along has been there's only one heir of Abraham that can claim the promises of Abraham. One son who didn't arrive till Christmas. And that was God's son. The sweet gift of the gospel, the good news, is that if you have faith in Christ, you are united to him. His life and death and resurrection are yours. His record is yours. His relationship to God is yours. His glad welcome into heaven is yours. The affection that God has for Christ is yours. Now you might be wondering, well, hold on for a second. I thought that God was the father of all people. Doesn't the Bible teach the universal fatherhood of God? Can't We're all God's children. It does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that. All people are made by God. We all receive life and existence from God alone. But he's 
not the father of those who do not trust in Jesus. Those people are not in Christ, but the Bible would say they're in Adam. Adam was the first father of the human race, and he plunged the whole human race into sin, into rebellion against God, and we inherited from Adam a sinful nature, sinful hearts that don't love and treasure and worship God. And we gladly live out that identity. That's the identity of our hearts, which the law exposes. The law draws it out. You are by nature a child of Adam, a son or a daughter of Adam. And so you have his relationship after sinning with God. And God's word declares that those who are not in Christ are actually, it's worse than that. We are children, it says, of the devil. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees who refused to believe in him. God is our father. Abraham is our father. He says, no, he's not. You are the children of your father, the devil. And he's not saying that Satan made them. He's not giving Satan any credit. Satan can't create. No, but that they share in his relationship with God. Satan is an enemy of God and so too are they. They take after him. That's why the Bible says that without belonging to Christ, not only are we children of Adam and we are children of the devil, but we're children of wrath, Paul says in the book of Romans. Which means we are people by nature who cannot expect to be received by God with affection and joy, but whose expectation is to be punished by God for our sin. Not treated as sons and daughters, but being, being treated as sworn enemies. Recall what we said last week. We, we noticed last week in Paul's teaching about the purpose of the law of God. The law's purpose is to show people who don't trust in Christ and are and it's showing them that they're not actually wanting to be children of the actual God. Maybe they want to be children or see themselves as children of some version of God that they've made up. But when then the real God comes with his commands and he says, this is who I am and this is who I love, then they realize, no, I am not. Oh, no, not that one. I don't want to be his child. I don't want to obey him. Even though they might not want to be punished by him. And so dear unbelieving guests, you are not a child of God. He's not your father. You stand before him in filthy robes and your guilty records and wicked hearts. He doesn't count you a friend. He doesn't count you a child, but an enemy because that's what you are. And if it weren't true, if that were not true, Jesus would not have come. He wouldn't have come to a world of sons and daughters of God to die for them. He came for a world of sons and daughters of wrath to rescue these sons and daughters of wrath and give them the right to be called sons and daughters of of God. John 1 verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so dear unbelieving guests, 
the fact that you were upset or bothered by hearing that you're not naturally a son or daughter of God is actually further evidence that you aren't. Because a person who actually trusts in Christ for their salvation is not surprised to hear that without Christ, they're not a son or daughter of God. They know this is true. They know the only right son of God. The only one who can rightly claim that by nature is the Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, the offer of the gospel is not to improve your relationship with God. If you've come to Christ to improve your relationship with God, you have heard and trusted a false gospel. That's not the gospel that was preached by Christ and that the Bible preaches. The offer of the gospel is not to improve your relationship with God. It is to abandon it and trust that Christ took that relationship with God to the grave. And when he died and that instead of improving our relationship with God, we are swept up into Christ's relationship with God. The way that the liver or spleen or nose of a son has that son's relationship with the son's father. Or gallbladder for anybody who had a recent surgery. We don't have to wonder whether being swept into Christ Jesus' relationship with the Father is one of joy or wrath. We don't have to wonder. He is the well-pleased Son of God. Christ is God's delight, the Father's delight. In fact, if you search the whole universe... Heaven and earth, the greatest joy, the sweetest joy, the most satisfying thing, the greatest treasure there possibly exists, the thing that has the most value, you would find that it would be the love of the Father to the Son. At best, all other pleasures, all other treasures, at best, they are just reflections of that pleasure and of that treasure. At best, they are living parables of that. And so, dear brothers and sisters and unbelieving guests, do not believe the lie that without Christ, people are sons and daughters of God. And do not believe the lie that your heart constantly is faced with. The lie that other treasures and pleasures are greater than to have Christ's relationship, to have Christ's sonship with God. Do not believe the lie that having Christ's relationship to the Father is not enough to satisfy and you have to go elsewhere to sort of top it up. Those brothers and sisters in Christ who went before you, who died in the faith and who are now in the presence of God, enjoying the love of the Father to the Son, they now know it by sight, what they knew by faith beforehand. Sometimes they only believed it with very weak and doubting faith. They know now that it is, in fact, the greatest treasure to have Christ's relationship with God the Father. That we don't simply have an improved relationship with God. But the gift is to be received by God along with Christ along with the Son, in the Son, to be welcomed in the joy of the Son. This, dear friends, is the sure oath of God to all who have repented 
abandoned their relationship with God and in turn, and in turn trusting in Christ's relationship to God, to all who believe. Those who do not believe, whether Jew or Gentile, are not sons of God and not sons of Abraham. But even worse than that, they are strangers of Abraham and enemies of God. But all, even the worst of sinners, all who have faith in Christ, don't just have sonship with God. They have Christ's sonship and love of God. Our second point is this. The robe of Christ's identity and righteousness is the possession of even the newest believer. The robe of Christ's identity and righteousness is the possession of even the newest believer. This is what Paul is getting at when we see this in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Hold on for a second. Why is Paul talking about baptism? Does baptism save a person? No. Paul has just said that, in faith, that, that faith in Christ is how a person is saved. He had some pretty mean names for people who said that something else makes you a son of, of God and makes you saved. So then why is he then saying this about baptism? Christ insisted that everybody who trusts in him be baptized. He insists on this. Baptism is the sign of God's promises to you. It's not a symbol of your promises to God. It's a sign of God's promises to you. He insists that the church give a visible sign of his promises to all who believe. Weak faith, yes. Jewish faith, yes. Dutch faith, yes. Jamaican faith, yes. Italian faith, yes. Baby faith, yes. He insists the church give this visible sign to all who believe before they can accomplish anything before God. Before they start in earnest in their sanctification. Before they have even had a chance to gain a Christian record and, uh, and uh, um, a track record and resume. The visible sign of God's promise is given to those who have faith, even the newest believer. Which is why it comes at the beginning, at conversion. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, if it was right for you to receive baptism, it's right for you to have confidence that you stand before God, not in your own robes, but in Christ's righteous robes. In Christ's identity, and Christ's righteousness. The people who should be baptized are the same people who stand before God in Christ's righteousness, clothed in Christ. Christ's identity is what gets you into the kingdom. You swapped your own robes for Christ's. And so Paul is saying, trusting in your identity, again, is foolish. It is attempting to swap out your uh, Christ's robes for yours. Don't be so foolish. Now, there is a baptism that saves you. Spirit baptism. The baptism of the Spirit does save you. This is the moment at which a person believes in Christ. The moment the Holy Spirit gives you faith and begins to live in you, you are in Christ. You are a new creation. Your old identity crucified with Christ and you are now in Christ. And we see this in, in the way baptism is actually symbolized, right? In the same way that water baptism immerses you 
covers you, clothes you in water. So when the spirit of God baptizes you by giving you faith, he immerses you, he covers you, puts on Christ. You are now immersed in Christ. You're covered in Christ. Christ covers you. His righteousness is a record. Like the water of baptism, like a royal robe. And this is at conversion. This is when you have faith in Christ. The spirit does that. And so now you no longer stand naked and exposed, but clothed in Christ. Would I be accepted by God in the judgment? That's not a question a believer has to ask. Ultimately, because our faith in the Holy, uh, that the Holy Spirit has uh, given us is that we have put on Christ. And so now, as we approach our death, considering the moment we stand before God, our thoughts or our questions, instead of, would I be able to stand before God in judgment? We now get to ask the question, if I'm in Christ, would Christ be accepted by God? And dear, dear Christian, the answer is a loud and resounding yes. He would. And so this is the same confidence that we have for our prayers. This is what it means to pray in Christ's name. It doesn't just simply mean that you say the words in Christ's name, in Jesus' name. It's good to do that. But what does it mean? It means you approach God clothed in Christ, on Christ's record. Could I approach God's throne based now on what I have done as a servant or a son? And could I ask him to use his almighty power to care for my needs and requests based on as the kind of Christian that I've been? It's not a question that a believer should be asking themselves. Dear Christian, the, the sweeter question, uh, question that we are to be asking is this. Would Christ's approach to the throne of God be gladly received and answered? Yes, and dear Christian, you are clothed in Christ. You have put him on by the Holy Spirit, by faith. And this is true when you are in a period of time when you have been amazed at God's sanctifying work in your life. When obedience has come easy and you are consistently saying no to the temptations of sin. In those times, dear sister, dear brother, do not be fools enough to pray on that basis. You are a fool to pray to God by that name. That is not better than praying simply and only in Christ's name, on his credentials. But dear Christian, it's also true, that moment that you've just realized you have foolishly and wickedly sinned. When you've come to your senses after giving into temptation and dishonoring God, living as an enemy instead of as a son or a daughter. With your money, perhaps, you've done this, or with your words, perhaps. With lust or greed or pride or anger or laziness. When the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin and you desire forgiveness and transformation from that sin, still then you stand and are summoned to stand before God in prayer. For forgiveness, and you are summoned to stand in Christ's robes even then. So don't wait until you put on better robes. 
before you call on Christ for forgiveness. There are no better robes than Christ's. Run immediately to the Lord for forgiveness. And don't run to him unless you're clothed in Christ. So run. Run now. Do not delay. You have his robes. Use them to come to the Father, your Father. And he swears that that prayer, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of your unrighteousness, to take your wicked heart and transform it, to forgive you, to free you of that sin, to lead you into repentance and holiness. He swears to answer that prayer because you're wearing Christ's robes. And you got those robes when you were first converted. Those robes are good for running to him and good for falling before him. And that's why he died to give them to you. He already wore your robes on the cross and he received the reception from God that you would have received if you came to God with your robes, which is damnation and death. So great was his love for you, dear sister, dear brother, to give you his robes. And those robes were your gift, not once you proved that you were a son or a daughter, but the moment you believed in Christ. Our third point is this. Differences in believers do not alter the kind of heir they are. Differences in believers do not alter the kind of heir they are, H. E-I-R. We'll read this in chapter 3, verses 28 to 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. It should be very clear by now that there is not more than one way to inherit God's promises. There is not more than one way to inherit God's promises to Abraham. The one way is to be in Christ, in Abraham's heir, to be robed in Christ, to be covered by his righteousness, to be covered by his identity. That's why Paul says here, there's no Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female. You inherit Christ's identity, not your own. You inherit with Christ's identity, not your own. So those things that are true of Christ, according to his human nature, of course, those things that are true of Christ are true for your inheritance before God. Was Christ the heir of Abraham? Are you in Christ? Then that's yours. I want you to pay close attention here to the choice of words Paul uses here. Paul's talked a lot about Jew and Gentile so far, hasn't he? I want you to pay attention here. He, 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 changes, he changes his wording. It underlines something with bright colors. He doesn't say there is no Jew. What would you expect him to say? There's no Jew nor Gentile. He doesn't say that. What does he say? That's the old category. Gentile meaning unclean. Instead, he says Greek. The old category is done away with. And that was only fitting when Abraham's descendants were waiting for the heir to come. Only fitting while the book of the law, that Mosaic covenant, held Israel in captivity to prevent them from seeking false saviors from the nations. While the law of God worked in them as an immature child waiting for the heir to come. 
So the old category of Jew and Gentile is old and worn out and torn article of clothing. It's like an old wineskin. It did its job. But while it was in place, it was testifying the Messiah would come. But that he hadn't yet come. Now the difference is merely between Jew and Greek. Two cultural backgrounds. These aren't spiritual categories. These aren't even categories in, in God's mind anymore in terms of inheritance. In Colossians, in a parallel passage, you, you might, that passage might sound familiar. I think I've heard something before like that. Yeah, in Colossians, we're going to say that the difference between Jew and Greek is the same difference between barbarian and Scythian. And God is pleased to clothe barbarians in the righteous robes of Christ by faith. And he's also pleased to do the same for Scythians and Greeks and Jews. But the inheritance is based on the robe of Christ, not the robe of that ethnic identity. It's also wonderful to notice the difference between the different pairs. See those three different pairs, right? You got Jew, Greek, slave, free, and then male, female. See those three pairs? Did you notice the first two pairs are are uh, neither A nor B. See that? Neither A nor B. But the last pair is different. It's not neither A nor B. It's no male and female. See, he's quoting from Genesis 1, the creation of humanity, into two lovely and complementary genders. Part of his glorious and beautiful design, perfectly suited for a one flesh union in marriage did he create us, male and female, both made in his image, equal yet distinct, different design, different roles, which glorify God's attributes differently, so that a marriage would not be a marriage without a, a man or without a woman. It would tell a lie about God's character, about God's identity. So to a church would be incomplete without women and incomplete without men. And this is a distinction which pleased God to design before the fall into sin. Those other distinctions did not exist before the fall into sin. This one did. And so it matters that a person is a woman. It matters that a person is a man. There are honorable and unique ways to treat a man differently than, to, than, than a woman. And a woman differently than a man. But even though Paul, by by, by separating this out, right? He, he, the distinction between male and female is different than that, the, the Jew and Greek and, and slave and free. So he's setting it apart, but still, even though honoring the created order of male and female, he say, he's saying, even still, even though there still is male and female, it isn't depending, it doesn't depend on how you relate to God. Both are saved the same way if they're saved at all. Not being a daughter or son, but by being in the son, the only son of God, the only true heir of Abraham. But, even though there is a different way to treat a man or a woman, there is no different way to treat a Jew or a Greek. Back in the old covenant, there was a difference in how you were to treat a Jew or a Gentile, but now that man is no longer even considered a Gentile, not even as a Greek, but as a Christian. Now God is more glorified 
by saving people from all nations and people groups and languages than from just one. He absolutely is more glorified in doing that. I can save a Jew. I can save a Greek. I can save an African. I can save a Dutchman. I can save an Irishman. But the difference only shows, uh, proves to show that there is actually no difference. To show that it's the same for God to save a Dutchman as it is a Chinese man. There is no difference. Even continuing in slave and free. Those with resources and then those who have less resources. Brilliant and simple people are saved the same way. People from the most technologically advanced culture are saved the same way that other cultures are saved. By putting on Christ. By covering up whatever they would have stood before God with. or Whatever credentials they thought they could stand before God with. Covering those up. Not by adding Christ to them. Not by improving those credentials. By covering them up. With who? With Christ's identity. So there's no different way for a person who is a slave to inherit from God. And the way a free man inherits. There's no difference how to treat, to treat a free Christian than a Christian slave. A manager or an hourly laborer. The question is, is the man or woman in Christ? You are all one in Christ Jesus, says Paul. Now, the church is to accept, by baptism, those who are clothed in Christ by faith. Simply this, the question is this. Who belongs in the church? Who belongs in the family of God? Who naturally belongs in the church? Who naturally, rightfully has a position in the church or in the family of God? There's only one answer, and that's Christ. Christ is the only one who naturally deserves that. So, a church for a certain kind of people is a gross and disgusting rejection of the gospel even if they still preach the gospel from the pulpit. Well, it's a church for the wealthy. No, it's a church for, it's a church for the poor. No, it's a church for white people or black people or Filipino people or educated people or millennials or boomers or cowboys. Yes, even that. This is a church for Christ. And if a person is in Christ or clothed with Christ by faith alone, and then that person is told that this is not the church for them, you have unwittingly said that this is a church that is not for Christ. If his credentials, if his identity is not enough to become a full-fledged member, oh, you're in big trouble. You have lost the plot and you have lost the gospel. If Christ's credentials if he couldn't come here on his credentials, if he would not qualify as a member, then the church has already abandoned the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who rightfully deserves a spot in the family of God. And the only way to be a child of God is to be united to him, to be incorporated into him, to be grafted into him, to be immersed in him, to be covered by him, to be clothed by him, abandoning your credentials and gladly being clothed in his. See, the Judaizers, this group of false teachers, they wanted the Greek Christians to believe that God's promises to Abraham, its offspring, were not all theirs. 
unless they were children of Abraham, according to the flesh or according to the law. They wanted Greek Christians to think of something in addition to Christ's credentials when looking at God's words and promises to Abraham's people. When seeing these promises and comforts and rich blessings and thinking, is this God's comfort and promise to me too? Can I add to the promises of God by being somebody different or doing something different? Maybe open up a whole new sonship of God by, that I didn't have otherwise? No, says Paul to these non-Jewish Greeks, these Galatians. Go search the promises of God to his people in his word, the comforts, the promises. Only Christ, this is his point, only Christ was the true possessor of those. And if you have faith in him, you are in him. You are clothed in his robes, inheriting what he has earned and what was promised to Abraham about him. And so dear unbelieving guests, you stand before God now and will soon stand before him facing judgment as an enemy with your own record and your own robes. You stand condemned for your sin, for your lying and adultery and selfishness and blasphemy and stealing and selfishness and pride and refusal to worship God and especially for the wicked heart out of which all of that flowed. But while you were an enemy of God, Christ was sent, born of a woman, as a man perfectly suited to earn for you a perfect robe. And perfectly suited, becoming a man, he was perfectly suited to wear your robes of damnation on the cross and then to rise from the dead. So repent and believe in Christ. Trust in his life and death and resurrection. Abandon your trust in your own record and rather receive freely as a gift by faith. Receive his record. Be united to him, clothed in him. Be in him rather than being condemned for your sinful identity. Be embraced by God for Christ's righteousness and identity. And he's happy to put that ring on your finger and the robe of an heir on you, the way that the father of the prodigal son warmly and lovingly put that rebellious son. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, those who trust in Christ, let this condemn every attempt to stand before God on your own record based on something about you. Let this condemn all ethnic pride, or pride of wealth, or pride of knowledge. Let this condemn the way our homes have been a little less inviting to those who have faith in Christ, but not, or maybe in a different class or identity according to the flesh. You know, I, I like to hang out with uh, mature Christians. That's who I like to hang out with. Uh, I, I like to hang out with, you know, young Christians, or I like to hang out with uh, Christians of my own language or ethnic background. Let this condemn that. Because the question you're asking is, is this person clothed in Christ? What are the credentials for being treated as my brother or sister? 
Does Christ have those credentials? I sure hope so. (laughs) Does that person have Christ? Well, then he or she is my brother or sister. Dear Christian brothers and sisters, as many of you as had the smallest amount of faith to warrant God's promises in baptism, you are clothed in Christ. You are in him. He is your identity. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You are not your own. You belong to him. You are his. And not the way that your backpack is yours, but the way that your elbow is yours. You are Christ's. He is your head. He is your savior and righteousness and plea before God. He is your new identity. So, as we're going to see next week, live according to that identity and gladly welcome all who have that identity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have seen our sorry state, the wickedness of our heart, our identity as enemies of yours, children of wrath. We rejoice that you saw that, and rather than giving us something to improve our standing before you or to improve our relationship with you, Lord, we are grateful you gave a Savior. And you united us to him, being swept up in his identity, being united to him as a head is united to the body. So Lord, I pray that we would embrace the truth and gladly rejoice that we stand before you in Christ or we don't stand before you at all. Lord, let us have great confidence that that is not just enough, not just sufficient, but it is infinitely enough and infinitely sufficient. Lord, let us walk in that identity as sons and daughters of yours because Christ has clothed us in that. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us a church that is grateful for this great gift and who sees more and more the depth and width and breadth of that love that caused Christ to go to the cross for us and also to understand the gift of that love between the Father and Son that is ours eternally. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name.